In Revelation chapter 2, we'll read verse 8 through 11. This is the second uh, church, the second letter that is addressed to the church, Church of Smyrna, also known as the persecuted church. Verse 8 reads, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Again, each of these letters ends with a statement like that. He who has an ear, let him hear. I think every one of us here this morning, right, we not only have one ear, we have two ears, right? Uh, So this is for us today. This is not just for the church of Smyrna. Back in the day when John is writing this, when Jesus is telling John what to write. But this is for us this morning. So a couple of points I want us to make sure that we get before we dive in here. The first thing is that we need to be praying more and more for the majority of Christians on this planet. Many of us don't realize that we are living in an anomaly. That for us to be able to gather here on a Sunday morning, us to be able to post that we're gathering on a Sunday morning, us posting scripture, YouTube videos, things like that, and not have any backlash is an anomaly. That's not what's normal in this world, and that's not what's normal throughout all of history. More than 70 million Christians have been martyred throughout history. And more than half of them were martyred in this 20th century. That means more Christians have been killed in this 20th century than every other century combined. There's many countries that are very much trying to kill and snuff out every single Christian. Countries like North Korea, Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sudan, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Yemen, China. All throughout our world, there are governments, neighbors, even drug cartels that are looking to wipe out Christians. Again, this is what we should be used to. Each month, 322 Christians are killed for their faith. 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed. 772 forms of violence are committed against Christians every month. That's beatings, abductions, rapes, and arrests. Again, this is what is normal. We even look back to our Lord and Savior Jesus, right? The master of our faith, the Alpha and the Omega. What happened to him in this life? He was put to death. Because of what he believed and because of the truth that he said. And because he was not willing to water it down. He wasn't willing to be politically correct, if you would. You think of the 12 apostles, swap out Judas, throw in their Paul. And what happens to 11 out of the 12 apostles? Martyrdom. The odds are not that good, right? One out of every 12 survives and lives a long life. So for us, one of the key things that we should keep in mind is to pray. This church, right, this letter to most of the Christians around our world today is a great portion of Scripture for comfort because this is what they're going through. 
couple other things I want to make sure we're reminded of this morning is that we need to know the biblical definition of being rich. Right? It says you're, you're in poverty. But Jesus says, hey, but you're rich. Again, what is our definition? What is our mindset of riches? I think most of us, if someone asks you, hey, would you like more money in the bank? Sure, right? I don't think anyone would say no to that. Hey, you want to have a nicer car, nicer house, nicer vacation house, nicer vacations, new shoes, new clothes, fix that bathroom, fix that kitchen, put that pool in the back, new playground. Many of us would love to have that. But at what cost? And not only what cost, but what is our spiritual estate? You see, the church of Smyrna, they were in poverty, but Jesus said they were rich. Church of Laodicea, they were rich, and yet Jesus said you are poor, blind, and naked. Which one will we be? Another thing for us to note is to not be fearful. All throughout Scripture, there, almost every single time an angel meets someone, he says, hey, fear not. Hey, fear not. Hey, fear not. And the same is true for us this morning. Next point to be reminded of is to be faithful until the end. Again, our Christian race is not a 100-yard dash. It's not a 40-yard dash. It's not a 100-meter race. It's a race of endurance. What makes a good marathon runner? Is it someone that can run 100 yards? Is it someone that's good at a three-legged race? Right? Is it someone that's good at something else? No, it's someone that can run for hours and hours and miles and miles. And finally, that we would be preparing ourselves for martyrdom. Are you prepared for that? Are you ready to give up your life saying, I'm not going to relent? He is my God. He is my Savior. There are no other gods. There is no other way to heaven. Are we willing to live in that and die in that? In John 16, Jesus, he gives us uh, some words here. He says, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. It seems that the words of Jesus go completely against most of the churches that speak of health and wealth and just easiness of life the closer and closer you get to Jesus. Jesus promises us the opposite. He says, hey, in this world, you will have tribulation. But in the midst of that tribulation, don't be afraid. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We can turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, again, I, I'm growing to love Peter more and more. I love his, right, his character development, his character arc, right, his relationship with the Lord and how he grows and before we read 1 Peter chapter 4, to be reminded of who this man once was. Right? There's a moment Jesus says, hey, I have to go up to Jerusalem. They're going to take me. They're going to crucify me there. And Peter pulls, in, pulls Jesus aside and says, hey, Jesus, you've got to stop talking about this, right? This isn't good for the ministry. What are you talking about? Pain, suffering, and death. Get that out of here. What are you talking about, right? In another instance, when Jesus is arrested... Peter is either a really good shot or a bad shot, right? Either he was completely asleep, he woke up, he grabbed his sword, and he cut off the ear of one of the servants, right, one of the soldiers, or perhaps he's completely awake and he just completely missed, right? We don't know. But in a moment of difficulty, in a moment of persecution, Peter pulls out his sword right away. Jesus tells him to put it away. And now here in 1 Peter 4, this is that same Peter who tells us in verse 12, Beloved, 
Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Again, the reminder to us, don't be surprised when you go through trials. If we're honest, my life is the exact opposite, right? I get surprised when things don't work out well, right? When I'm in a trial, when I get a flat tire, when I'm sick, when someone gets bad, sick, uh, uh, bad news about their health, that's when I'm surprised. Oh my goodness, I can't believe this. No, the Bible tells us the opposite, to not be surprised when that happens. And that when we have that, especially when it's because of our love for Christ, we are blessed. We should rejoice. That should be our mindset. And persecution and trials, they do an amazing thing. In Peter, 1 Peter 5 verse 10, it says, But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while... Perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. You see, it's interesting. Out of the seven churches, Smyrna is the only city in existence today. And Smyrna is the only city that still has a Christian influence today. The rest of these seven churches, they all fizzled out. The candlestick was taken out of those cities. But Smyrna, as they go through so much persecution, they are maturing They are established, they are strengthened, and they are settled in their walk and relationship with the Lord. In 1 Peter 1, verse 6 and 7, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, trials reveal to us the genuineness of our faith. And it seems like those who have a genuine faith aren't so fearful of trials. And those who don't have a genuine faith are trying to run from trials as, as much as they can. Right? The same is true of a student. A student that has studied for a test when the teacher says, hey, we're having a test today, they're ready. Bring it on, put another A on my grade point average, right? But that student, I know none of you here, only me, only I can relate, right? When the teacher says, hey, we're having a test, hey, we're having a pop quiz, oh my goodness, there has to be a way out of this. Why? I'm not ready for it. I'm not genuine. Again, family, there should be an alarm going off in our minds and hearts if we're always trying to run from trials. If comfort has become our God, right? There's that movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? And he's there, he's got the little treasure he wants and he tries to put a big rock on it thinking it's gonna work, right? Doesn't really work, the big rolling stone comes and attacks him if you would. And I think many of us, we've taken the true gospel that Jesus says you have to crucify yourself daily and follow me. If not, you're not worthy of me. We've taken that and we've taken the American dream of health and wealth and we've tried to put that on there. We say, hey, it's the same, right? Jesus wants my life perfect. 
Jesus wants me to have the 2.5 kids, the 3.2 dogs, right, and the white picket fence. That's what God wants for me. And it doesn't work. Many of us, we've taken comfort, and that has become our God. And anytime our God is affected, anytime our comfort is being shaken, many times we curse God. We get mad at God. We get angry at God. And it should be the very opposite. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17 tells us, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Again, these afflictions, these trials, these temptations, they're for a moment. They're for a moment. We're going to be spending eternity in heaven. And these afflictions, though for a moment, they work in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. These things are good for us. That's why we shouldn't run from them. We should press into them. Right? Every once in a while I call Jose and we always say the same thing. Si no es Juana, es la hermana, right? If one bad thing's not happening, something else bad is happening. And those that know that and realize that and are able to laugh at that, I see maturity in their walk with the Lord. But the person every time, oh my goodness, I got this, I got that, freaking out. There's something wrong there. Is your comfort in the Lord or in the things that are coming in your life? Again, in your comfort, in your peace, in your joy. I think of uh, Tony Falzion. He's a, a pastor. We love him dearly. He's in Finger Lakes. And there is a season. His wife got diagnosed with cancer. His daughter-in-law got hit by a garbage truck, was in the hospital for many months. And in that same season, his house burns down. So he calls his pastor looking for comfort. He's literally in the, part, in, in the driveway looking at his house. And Pastor Bill laughs and says, man, Satan wants to kill you. That's that's the comfort of his pastor. But again, as you go through trials and you realize, hey, whatever affliction we have, it's just for a moment. We have eternity in heaven. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11 and we'll wrap up this intro. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I don't know who your favorite character there is in Hebrews 11, right? Maybe it's David or Daniel. Maybe it's Moses. You think of Samson, and I know God doesn't have favorites, right? Besides me, I know I'm his favorite, but uh, here in Hebrews 11, it seems as if at the tail end of the chapter, the Lord is sort of revealing those who are nearest and dearest to his heart. Hebrews chapter 11, we'll start off in verse 32. It says, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith they subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness they were made strong. They became valiant in battles. They turned to flight the armies of aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Again, who wouldn't want to go to a church like that? Raising people from the dead putting armies to, f- to flight, stopping the mouths of lions. But look at the 180 that happens here in verse 35. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted, were slain with the sword, They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. 
Look at verse 38. Of whom the world was not worthy. Again, family, when we look at the hall of faith, who are the people that we're glorifying? Who are the people that we're looking to as the great men and women of faith? Hey, it takes a step of faith to close the mouth of a lion. It takes a step of faith to fight against armies when the numbers are not in your favor. But it takes even greater faith to withstand trials and afflictions even to the point of death. Again, what are we looking to? What does the gospel mean to us? We go back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Again, another letter written here to these seven cities and seven churches on this postal route there in Turkey. The second city on the route is Smyrna. And verse 8 tells us, To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. And each letter is addressed to an angel. Rather, a messenger or the pastor of that church. Smyrna, we talked about, it's the only one of these seven cities still alive today. Today it's known as the city of Izmir, Turkey. They changed their name in 1930. And it has a population of over 4 million people and still has a certain Christian presence there. Smyrna gets its name from myrrh. That's not what an angry cow says, right? Myrrh is an embalming spice that you would use for dead bodies, right? It's an embalming spice that you would use for dead bodies. The medicine wasn't that great, right, compared to today. Technology wasn't that great compared to today. So they would take the body and they would wrap it and they would take the myrrh, crush it, and put it into the clothes there so that the bodies wouldn't have such a stench. That's why it's so interesting that when the wise men come to Jesus... They bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Like, what kind of a baby gift is this? Many of us, we've gotten weird baby gifts, right? I don't think anyone ever gave you a coffin at your baby shower, right? That's basically what the wise men are bringing Mary. Myrrh was only to be used for embalming the dead. And yet it smells its greatest, its fragrance is its loudest in a sense, right? Most powerful when it's been crushed and broken down. And that's exactly what's happening to the church of Smyrna. Smyrna was a great city, a wealthy city. They were very grateful to Rome because Rome had gone throughout all the Mediterranean and wiped out all the pirates, giving greater wealth and greater access to trade on the seas. Rome also went through the roads and cleared out all of the thieves and people that would camp out at night, all the robbers. They cleared all of that out and even had the the roads lit at night so that you can go on the roads and trade and travel in safety. And all of Rome slowly but surely moved into Caesar worship. It didn't start that way off in the beginning. Caesar, that's not a name but a title. You think of president or king. And Caesar, the first ones, they saw themselves as mere men, mere mortals. But as they continued to grow in money and power, they began to think of themselves as demigods and gods. And in one way to tell people's true political affiliation, they would have them worship Caesar. Not only calling him Lord, but calling him a god. And Smyrna was the home to the temple of Tiberius, the first temple ever dedicated to a Caesar. And Smyrna, it was known as a tolerant city, if you would. You could worship whatever god you wanted to worship in Smyrna just as long as you also worshipped the Caesar. 
You want to worship Apollos, you want to worship Aphrodite, you want to worship whatever God you want to worship, it's fine. Just as long as you show that you are worshiping Caesar. And when you would go and offer your sacrifice, right, your small incense to Caesar, you'd be given paperwork where now you'd be able to trade. You'd be able to rent out a space for your business. You'd be able to go buy groceries. You'd be able to be employed. This opened the doors for health and wealth, in a sense, for connection into the city. And now at the end of verse 8, what does it tell us? These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Again, each of these seven letters could have been said, written from JC, right? Written from Jesus, written from the Messiah, written from your Lord. But Jesus, being the personal God that he is, draws from the description that John gave us about him in Revelation 1, 12 through 18. And he grabs one or two characteristics from that description. And there's different one or two for each of the seven churches to encourage them personally for what they were going through. To the church of Smyrna, he tells them, the first and the last. He who was dead and came to life. First and the last references the eternal nature of Jesus Christ. John 1 tells us, right, the word became flesh, the word dwelt among us, all of the worlds, everything in existence can only come through the word, only come through Jesus Christ. So you have Jesus, right, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and they are eternal, outside of time. They don't have bodies, they're all gods. And Jesus humbles himself to come into our world, bringing himself into time, and bringing himself in a physical body. To die a death, and then in heaven, he's the only body that is marred. The only body with scars, again, revealing to us how much he loves and cares for us. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I see what you're going through, and I know the end. Sometimes it brings us a lot of comfort just to be reminded, hey, Jesus sees you in your suffering. The eternal one, the first and the last, he hasn't forgotten about you. He sees what you're going through. He sees your care. We're going to see in a moment. He sees your works. Then he says, he who was dead and came to life. He who was dead and came to life. Again, physical life is not the end for the believer. And just as Jesus, when he came into this life, died a physical death and then was resurrected after he was unfairly put to death by Jews and Romans, so these martyrs and everyone here has access to this same gift. That if we die in Christ, we'll be raised again for life and life everlasting. That Jesus is the one that holds the keys to Hades, to hell, and death itself. And he's there to encourage them. Romans chapter 8 verse 11 tells us, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We could turn quickly to Romans chapter 6. And in Romans chapter 8, what we just read is that if we've come to faith in Jesus Christ, we have that same spirit within us. That same spirit that raised him from the dead is living inside each and every one of us. And everyone goes through death, right? Unless the rapture comes, everybody will go through death. But we who believe will be raised to life and have life everlasting. In Romans chapter 6, Verse 6 through 11, more truth on this. It says, knowing this, 
that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, if we've died with him, he died once and for all. So that now we get to taste of life eternally. Family, have you truly died to sin? Have you died with Christ? And he tells his disciples, you have to pick up your cross daily and follow me. If you're not doing that, he says, you are not worthy of me. This is the good news in a sense, right? This is the gospel. We were slaves to sin, and now he's given us a way to not be slaves to sin, but to be slaves of God, and not just leaves us as slaves, but sons and daughters of God himself. Have you truly died to sin? Think of Paul and how he says, right, I've been crucified And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Family, is there any area of your life that has not been put to death? Any area of life that you're saying, God, got to leave that one hanging around. That land is not conquerable, Lord. We have to keep that around. And Jesus is saying, no, it's all or nothing. 99%, that's not good enough. It is all or nothing. That's basically what was happening to the church of Smyrna. Rome would have been fine with them serving their God and following their God as long as they would have offered sacrifice and incense to Caesar and hailed him as Lord as well. The problem is there can only be one Lord, one boss, one master, one owner of our lives. Do you have several lords? Do you have several masters? Is sin a part of your master? Is it your kids, your spouse, your family, your persona? Because then it doesn't work out. There can only be one Lord. In John 11 verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Again, the promise of eternal life to those who are his sons and daughters. Then in verse 9, it tells us, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. Again, there's comfort to take here, but imagine this was the slogan for a church, right? Tribulation and poverty, right? Welcome to Calvary Chapel, tribulation and poverty. wonder what their Instagram would look like, their intro video would look like, right? Welcome to tribulation and poverty church. My name is, right? I think that church would be pretty empty today. There's comfort for us to know that Jesus knows our works. Or perhaps there's horror in your heart knowing that Jesus knows our works. He sees what you're doing. And he sees the heart and the intent of why you're doing it. If you're doing it to serve him or if you're just doing it to impress someone else. If you're doing it out of love for him or if you're doing it out of some sort of eternal scales that you've made up in your mind that's going to weigh out your good and your bad. He sees it. He sees it all, and one day he will judge all of our works, and only the things done for Christ will remain. He saw their tribulation. Again, because they were unwilling to hail Caesar as Lord, it cost them dearly. 
They were unable to run businesses. They were unable to be employed. They couldn't rent out any space. They couldn't make any deals. This was not just lower middle class driving a hoopty poor, right? If you don't know what a hoopty is, that's an old car, right? Got myself a 1998 Forerunner. I love that thing, right? But this isn't just that type of poor. These are those who were not sure where their next meal was coming from. That's the level of poor that the church of Smyrna had. And again, what's our definition of rich and poor? Jesus looks at them and says, hey, you're living in poverty, but you're rich. You are rich. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, here the Lord is encouraging them. He's encouraging us. And he says, you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. You see, this is sort of the first form of persecution. It costs you in your pocket. Perhaps you've been fired from a job or you lost out on a deal because you wouldn't mess with the numbers a little bit, even though everyone else is doing it. Because you wouldn't flirt with your boss or go out on a date with them. And perhaps that has costed you. The Lord says you have joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Hebrews 10.34 continues, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourself in heaven. Therefore, we do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Again, we need to have endurance that we can joyfully accept. Hey, they're plundering me because of my beliefs. That's okay. Wait till you see my house in heaven, right? Hey, I'm missing out on a couple deals here. Hey, I'm not as popular on social media here. Hey, I don't have as many friends here, but wait till you see me in heaven. Wait till you see me with my Father. That's the mindset we must have and endure to have. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus warns us. He tells us, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but... Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Family, what's our definition of riches? Our definition of poverty, right? How many of us, even fathers here, would say, ah, that boy you're interested in, man, he's from Smyrna. They're all broke. Can't marry that kid, right? How many of us here, ah, friend, ah, Going to go to that conference with Church of Smyrna? I don't know if we should go, man. They can't pay for their meals. They're like Debbie Downers. I don't know. What's our definition of riches and poor? What's our goal in life? What's our goal in life? Jesus looks at them and says, hey, you're in poverty, but you are rich. John Trapp says, every outward circumstance said that Christians in Smyrna were poor and even destitute. But Jesus saw through their circumstances to see that they were really rich, sweet-smelling Smyrna, the poorest but the purest of the seven churches. And perhaps this weakness, this poverty, this oppression led to them being the purest and the richest of all the churches that we look at. And this same mindset, this same attitude happens all throughout Scripture. You could think of the widow and her two mites. Jesus is there in the temple, the disciples are there with him, and the rich men, they come in, and it sounds like a casino, right? 
They dump all their money in the offering boxes. Everybody's looking. The disciples are like, whoa, look at that big tithe. Later on, a widow just drops in two mites, two half pennies. And that's when Jesus says, hey, hey, guys, look at this. Check this out. Look at this. This is incredible. Again, Jesus looks at the inward. Jesus doesn't just look at the amount of what we give. He looks at what we're giving in spite of what we not only have, but in spite of what we don't have. We can think of David versus all of his brothers. Even Samuel, a godly man, a godly judge and prophet, fell into the trap of looking at outward appearance. He looked at his, David's older brothers. Oh, man, this guy's jacked. He's big. He's tall. He's handsome. Has to be the next king of Israel. God says, nope, not that one. Not that one. Over and over and over again. Then God speaks to Samuel. Hey, I don't look like men. I don't look at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. You could think of the poor man Lazarus versus the rich man. And some think that this is a story, right, a parable. But Jesus using actual names, this was probably real individuals. Lazarus, he's a poor man. He's a beggar. He has nothing to his name. But in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, he's living in heaven in the streets of gold. The rich man having all his parties, having all his feasts, in a moment... In the twinkling of an eye, he's begging for a drop of water to be put on his tongue. What is our view of riches? Again, this tribulation and poverty led to the church of Smyrna being rich where it matters. Look at the contrast versus the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3 verse 17. In Revelation chapter 3, we'll start off in verse 16. It says, so then because you are lukewarm... And neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I've become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Again, there's a danger where we can look to our riches and think that we have safety there. The danger of looking at all the money around us, looking at the bank account, looking at our jobs, looking at our health... And we think we really don't need anything else. And Jesus, he says he hates that, right? John warns us that we need to abide in the vine. And if we don't ab- abide in him, what's the warning? Apart from me, you can do nothing. We can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ. But yet how often do we say, go to church Sunday morning? Not you guys, right? People online. I don't really have to do that. Start serving. I don't have to really do that. Read my Bible this morning, I don't have to do that. Prayer and fasting, that's for like spiritual superstars. That's not for me. Whatever the case may be, we can look at our riches, our comfort, our health, and think, I don't really need Christ. But then the moment all of that gets taken away, where's the first place we go? Or maybe the second place we go, right? First we look to Google, hey, what's going on here? What's happening with my health? But then after that, then we say, Lord, what's going on? Jesus, what's going on in my life? What is happening? Again, may we have the proper perspective. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Even for us as parents, what's our chief desire in our kids? Is it money? Is it fame? Is it fortune? Is it a degree? Or is it that they will know that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior and that they'll serve him for the rest of their lives? Revelation 2 continues, it says, And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Again, just as Jesus was crucified, 
due to the joint efforts. It wasn't just Rome alone, and it wasn't just the religious Jews alone. But you have the Sadducees and the Pharisees and Rome all combined to go against Christ. And the same thing was happening here with the persecution in Smyrna. The Roman officials gathered together with the religious Jewish leaders and they were the ones leading the charge against Christianity in Smyrna. In John 15, verse 18 through 20, again, a great warning to us. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Verse 20, Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Again, a promise here from Jesus that if there's any Jesus in our lives, the world is going to hate it. If there's any part of Jesus in our lives, the world is going to hate it. So now the question is, as we look at our relationships with this world, does the world love us? Because then Jesus tells us, great warning here, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. So if the world loves you, tons of unbelievers love you, they love you at the parties, they love you at all the shows, they love you at all the mixers, there's a warning going on there. I've been going through a discipleship group and we all looked at ourselves and said, hey, if there's no persecution in our lives, warning signs should be going off in our lives. And then Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Again, don't get it twisted. Stop lying to yourself saying, hey, 2021, I could be politically correct enough that they're going to love me and my gospel presentation. Hey, I'm going to be loving enough, caring enough that they're not going to really hate what I have to say about Jesus. You are saying you are more loving and more perfect than Jesus is if that's what your mindset is. Hey, I know my family member is doing X, Y, or Z. I'm going to tell them the truth that that's sinful, but they're still going to love me and everything's going to be okay. It doesn't work that way. We are not greater than our master. And if they hated the perfect son of God, who was multiplying bread and fish for free, healing people for free, raising people from the dead, raising young children from the dead, right? Is there anything that we don't love more? That little girl being raised from the dead, and yet this is the man they hated with such a hatred how in the world are we going to think that the world's going to love us and care about us and be okay with us if we are firm in the things of God? Verse 10, he says, Do not fear any of those things which, are about, which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Usually when someone tells you to not be afraid, why do they have to tell you to not be afraid? Because you're afraid. Because something's going on, right? I remember um, on our honeymoon, I was with Amanda. Of course, I'm going to be with her on my honeymoon. But I was with Amanda. <laughs> and we're in St. Thomas. And in St. Thomas, there are uh, iguanas absolutely everywhere. It's amazing. It's incredible. We're at this nice place having dinner right on the water. And there's a five-foot iguana right under her chair. I lean over and say, hey, honey, don't freak out. But, right, why do you say that? Because there's a huge reason to freak out. So Jesus is telling the church of Smyrna, hey, do not fear those things 
which you're about to suffer. Meaning, there's a great reason to be afraid. Because we're going to be thrown into prison. And when you're thrown into prison in this time period, it's not to go work out. It's not to go read books. It's to be put to death. It's not the death of uh, sword or uh, electric chair or chemicals. It's a death of being mauled by animals. By being sawn in two, by being ripped apart by horses and chariots. So Jesus is literally telling them, hey, stop being afraid. Do not fear. You see, oftentimes I look at the martyrs in the Bible, martyrs of today, and I think of, Lord, these are superheroes. There's no way I could ever compare to that. Lord, I don't know if I'm going to make it if something like that happens here. And the Lord tells us, do not fear. Meaning these people, they were fearful. Meaning they were just like us, fearful of things. Corey Ten Boom, again, incredible woman, incredible life she lived for the Lord. She's at a concentration camp in Germany where her sister passes away. She gets out. The Lord uses her. She's able to forgive one of the guards that was there beating her and her sister. But she recalls a story before they were there in prison. And she was talking with her dad. And she said, Dad, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. I don't think I have the faith or the strength to die a martyr's death. Dad, I don't think I got it. And her dad looks at her and says, Corey, when I send you on a trip, when do I give you the money for the train? Hey, dad, right before I go, the day of, the moment of. He says, in the same way, your father will give you what you need right before you go through the situation. Again, for many of us, we're just staying away from the situation entirely. And what we're not allowing is ourselves to be in a moment of weakness so that we can see God acting strong on behalf of our weaknesses. If we always keep ourselves in comfort and luxury and in no place of weakness, you will never see God act strong and mighty on your behalf. It's just not going to happen. And it's the same thing for us. Don't be afraid. Allow the Lord to take you where he wants to take you. Dustin Bench, he's a pastor, and he speaks about John Hopper, who three weeks before he was led to the stake and burned alive, he wrote the following to his friends from prison. He said, beware of beholding too much of the misery of this world, for fear of it draws us from God. Family, are you just staring at the misery of this world? Are you just completely stuck in the misery, the sicknesses, the pain, and the bad things that can happen in this world? Because if that's all you're focused on, it's drawing you away from God. We shouldn't be focused on all the misery, all the pain, all the problems. We should be focused on the Lord, focused on His Word. And many of us, we serve the God of comfort. We're not serving the God of the Bible. So as we're obsessed with the misery, with the sicknesses, with the death counter, with all the bad news going on, we're not being led to be more and more men and women of faith. We're being more and more led to be men and women of fear. And the just, they are to live by faith, not by fear. Again, be aware of your life. Hey, are you just obsessing over the miseries of this world? It will draw you away from God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2 through 4 tells us to set our minds on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Where is your mind? Is it just on the things of this earth? 
Is it just on summer vacation now that we just finished Christmas vacation, right? Is it just on retirement? Is it just on the next toy, the next season of life, the 401k? Or is your mind on the things of heaven, the things of Christ? Matthew chapter 10 verse 28 tells us, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Again, who do we respect more? Our government, our boss, our co-workers? Is it our family, our parents, our kids? Are we more worried about respecting our kids than respecting God himself? Are we more worried and more fearful about what our parents have to say about us than what God himself has to say about us? We need to be fearful of God, respectful of God. God tells them that they are going to have tribulation for 10 days, that they're going to be tested. Richard Trench, he says, the same event is often both a temptation from the devil and a trial from God. God sifting and winnowing the man to separate his, chief, his chaff from his wheat. The devil sifting him in the hope that nothing but chaff will be found in him. What separates a trial from a temptation? Truly, I think it's how we react to it. There are some people that, again, they drown in a cup of water. This small trial happens, and then it goes from a trial to a temptation, and then they go down the path of worrying. They go down the path of fretting. They then turn to alcohol or pornography or a mistress or another relationship to dumb down the trial that they're going through. But a true believer goes through the trial and allows the Lord to continue to sift his heart. Take away those things that are evil and to set their minds on the things that are good, the things that are from God. That we can say in our minds, Lord, even if I lose this, I will still serve you. I have some pretty messed up conversations in my head sometimes. But sometimes I think, Lord, if you'd ever take Amanda, Lord, am I still willing to serve you? Lord, if you'd ever take away my kids, my family, Lord, am I still willing to serve you? What is your price? Lord, if you take away my health, my legs, or the church, whatever, my freedom, Lord, am I still willing to serve you? Trials and temptations, two sides of the same coin. Are we going to press into the Lord all the more? Or are we just going to go the way of temptation and find sin to try to dumb down the trial, which then leads to pain, which then hopefully you repent, which then guess what's going to happen later on? The same trial. The same test is going to come up because we need to see that test to show the genuineness of our faith. He tells them they're going to have tribulation for 10 days. Scholars, they debate what does this really mean. First off, it could mean that to these poor and tired believers, hey, you're going to go through tribulation, but don't worry. It's only going to last for 10 days. Right? There's some of us here, we're fine going through pain, we're fine going through difficulty. Just tell me how long it's going to take, right? And I'll grin it, I'll bear it till it's done. Something that it's going to be that most of the church is going to be thrown in prison by Satan within the next 10 days. That the persecution is going to heat up so much that the majority of the church of Smyrna is going to be thrown into prison. Some other scholars think that it was 10 waves of persecution starting with Nero in 64 to 68 AD and ending with Diocletian in 303 to 312 AD. And there's just something special about tribulation. Something special about difficulties for believers. Again, it sifts out the real believers and the make-believers. 
When our faith costs us something, those who were only there for the health and wealth, the goodness, the fan club, right, the free picnics, the free VBS, right, free daycare for a whole week, yeah, I'll put my kid in that. That's fine. But when there's a cost associated, there's a great sifting that happens. Even within these last two or three years, there's been a sifting within Christianity. Those who are going to church just because it was convenient, and those who are still going to church even though it may cost them something. A great sifting taking place. Why do I have to go to church? I could be on my sofa. I could pause the pastor when I want. I could fast forward the worship, rewind the worship. I don't like what he's talking about. Pause, go to the bathroom, come back, right? The difference is in our mindset. I could eat breakfast, but I could still be in my PJs. Church is the same thing. Again, there's a great sifting that's taking place. Tertullian famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Again, it's difficult to think of someone living in sin when their relationship with Jesus can cost them their lives. I don't think that really works. In China, right, their, their lives are on the line. They meet together in church. They could be arrested, taken away into prison. I don't think they're arguing about what Bible version they have, right? KJV only, that's the only way. I don't think they're arguing about things like that. They're just happy that they have a Bible to begin with. There's a great sifting that happens when we go through persecution. I don't think people are willing to live together and have sex outside of marriage and be arguing or two-timing their wives and yet being willing to die for the cause of Christ. Persecution, it sifts us. It purifies us. God told them, hey, don't be afraid. And then God told them, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Again, the faith of a true Christian is an enduring faith. It's an abiding faith. It's not just for a short season, but it's for the long race that requires endurance. Faithfulness to the end. Right? You think of a marriage. What defines a good marriage? Is it just that they were good for their first year and then they end in divorce? Oh, it was a healthy and great marriage, but they got divorced. Or hey, it was a good marriage. It lasted for 10 years and then it ended in divorce. Was that a good marriage? Hey, it lasted for 40 years. And then it ended in divorce. Was that a good marriage? Again, we need to endure until the end. Our relationship with the Lord. Oh, I remember Zach. And he served so hard for six months. And then he just disappeared. I don't know what happened to him, right? Is that a good Christian, right? A faithful Christian? We need to be faithful until death. Right? Can you name a hero whose life was known as restful and happy and easy and lazy? Is that what makes a good hero? Oh, I love that movie about that hero. All he did was eat at buffets and watch Netflix all day. I love that movie, right? It doesn't work that way. There has to be difficulty. There has to be steps of faith. There has to be difficulty and hardness and loss. And yet through that all, there's faithfulness. They're sticking to the cause. James chapter 1 verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 8, Paul says, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all Hopefully some of us here, right? But to all who have loved his appearing. 1 Peter 5 verse 4 says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Again, family, if we're faithful till death, 
There's a crown waiting for us. And the only way we can be faithful to death is by abiding in Jesus Christ. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The only way we're going to endure is if we're plugged into Jesus Christ. These great martyrs, it wasn't just because they ran off solo. They were plugged into a church and they were plugged into their relationship and walk with the Lord. You think of Stephen, right? The first martyr, he was a busboy at the church cafe. He was working in the cafe. That's what he did. And yet when the moment came, he was so filled with the word, so filled with the spirit that he's able to give a defense of Jesus from Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. And in the end, what a life and what a death, right? Lord, don't put this on their charge. Just like his master Jesus. Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Again, it's anyone that's plugged into Jesus. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Again, do not be fearful and be faithful until death. He who has an ear, let him hear. This is not just for the church of Smyrna historically, but this is for us today. If we overcome, we will not be hurt by the second death. Chuck Mister famously said, those born once will die twice. Those born twice will only die once. Family, have you been born again? Have you been born again? Have you said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I'm a sinner. I deserve death for all of eternity. And God in his grace and mercy sent Jesus to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, to take my sins. And then Jesus resurrected from the dead to give me the power over sin and death and hell itself. If that's you here this morning, then you will overcome the second death. What's the second death? It's the lake of fire. It's hell for all of eternity. Again, what does death matter if we don't have to spend the rest of eternity suffering and dying? What does death matter? Just for a moment, blink of an eye, and then for the rest of eternity, if we're in Christ, we'll be in heaven living life and that abundantly. Family, will you not taste of the second death? Are you found in Christ? Do you have your relationship and friendship with him? Is he your Lord and your master? Are you crucifying your flesh daily and following him? What great hope for us. And again, so sad when we see people committing suicide, thinking that it will take the pain away. And anyone who's committed suicide that's not in a relationship with the Lord, they wake up to the fires of hell for all of eternity. Again, a warning to us. Do we know that we will not be hurt by the second death? If we're plugged into Jesus, abiding in Jesus, and we're overcoming. Or you can think of that scripture, not being overcome by the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're not being overcome by this world and the definitions of this world. And you're allowing the Bible to transform your mind. If we're doing that, we're going to be those overcomers. There's a great battle today for who writes the dictionary, right? They're taking the same terms, but it's like that meme. It's like, you're saying this, but I don't think it means what you think it means, right? You're saying love and offended and judge, but what you think that means is not what the Bible's definition of love and offending and hurting. And that's where we as believers, we don't go by the definition of this world or who's popular. We go by the definitions of the Word of God. Again, just for us to get a picture of the 
martyrdom, the pain and the suffering that the church of Smyrna was going through. We're going to look real quickly at the martyrdom of their leader, their pastor. His name is Polycarp. It's not a Pokemon. His name is Polycarp, right? And Polycarp, he was a disciple of John. John the Apostle, he led Polycarp. He ministered to him. And then Polycarp becomes the pastor in Smyrna, the messenger of Smyrna, the angel of Smyrna, if you would. And there's a point in time when he's there leading the church of Smyrna, and there's already 11 people who have been martyred in his church. So imagine still coming to Calvary Chapel, Miami, Still leading Calvary Chapel, Miami, knowing there's 11 people in the pews and in the chairs that are no longer there with us. Over the past year, over the past two years, the government has been hunting them down and killing them. And still being willing to say, I'm going to go to the very same place where they arrested them and dragged them from there. Roman officials, they killed the 11th person from the church. His name is Germanicus. And now they were hunting for Polycarp. When Polycarp heard about this, he was not in the least bit upset. He was happy to even stay in the city of Smyrna, but eventually he was persuaded to leave. His friends took him to, a, to the nearby country, out to a farm, and there he spent his time as usual in prayer day and night. For people, for the church of Smyrna, and for the church throughout the world. They found out that those who were looking for him, hunting him down, they were coming near. So he left from that farm to another They immediately followed him, and when they could not find him, Roman officials seized two young boys who were slaves and tortured them until they would find out where Polycarp has gone. Polycarp, at this point, he's 86 years old. Again, imagine the hatred in your heart to be hunting down a grandpa, right? 86-year-old man. The average life expectancy in this time was about 40, 45 years old. So he was old in age. Three days before Polycarp was arrested, he was praying and he had a vision on his pillow that his pillow had become flames of fire. He said prophetically to those who are with him, I will be burned alive. The policemen and the horsemen, they came with the young slave boy at supper time on Friday with their usual weapons as if they were coming to arrest a robber. That evening, they found him lying down in the upper room of the cottage. He could have escaped But he refused, saying, God's will be done. When they heard that, when he heard that they had come, he went down and he spoke with them. And he had a meal prepared for them. He knew they were coming and he didn't, wasn't like home alone and he put a bunch of booby traps around, right? No, he prepared a meal for these people. They were amazed at his age and his steadfastness. And some of the soldiers even said, why did we go to so much trouble to capture a man like this? Immediately he called for food and drink for them, and he asked them for one hour to pray uninterrupted. They agreed, and he stood up and he prayed, and he was so full of the grace of God, he could not stop praying for two hours, right? It's like our kids right before mealtime. Yeah, you could pray, right? He prays for every single person at church, every single person in Smyrna, all the pastors, all the leaders. The men were astounded, and many of them regretted that they came to arrest such a godly and old man as this. When he finished praying, they put him on the donkey. They took him into the city. And as Polycarp was being led into the arena, again, when they would kill a Christian, they wouldn't do it in the back room. They wouldn't do it in the back of the prison. This was their form of entertainment. They would take him to the middle of an arena. And as he was being taken into the arena, a voice came to him from heaven and said, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. The pro-counsel asked him whether he was Polycarp or not. 
And on hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him to apostatize, to tell us, hey, what's going on? Tell us what's happening. Leave the Christianity. Leave the faith. Have respect for your old age and swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, down with the atheists. That's those who do not believe in the Roman gods. Swear, urge the proconsul, reproach Christ, and I will set you free. Polycarp declared, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I have wild animals here, the proconsul said. I will throw you to them if you don't repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil into righteousness. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned, the proconsul said. Polycarp replied, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. And it was all done in the time it takes to speak. The crowd collected all the wood, all the bundles of sticks from shops, from public baths, and the Jews, as usual, were keen to help them on a Saturday. On a Sabbath, they were willing to give up what they believed to be right to kill a Christian. But when they went to fix him to the post, he said, leave me as I am. For he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me to not struggle. He looked up to heaven and said, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son of Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of the angels, powers, and every creature, and of all the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. They then lit the fire, and it has been said that the fire roared in such a blaze that it became like a bowl over him, and yet he would not burn. He wouldn't burn. They said that it looked like he was being a piece of bread baked in the oven, or gold or silver glowing in a furnace. And some even began to smell a sweet scent like frankincense or some precious spices. He wouldn't burn, so it got to the point when they called one of the executioners to pierce him in his side with a dagger. And when they pierced him, such a great quantity of blood flowed out of him that then the fire was extinguished. And the crowd was amazed at the difference between the death of unbelievers and the death of the elect. Again, this is the power that Christ can have in us as martyrs. This so encouraged the church in Smyrna that later on 800 Christians would be burned alive together in an arena. And after that, 1,500 Christians would be burned alive in an arena because of what Polycarp had done. And today, Rome is done. Today, there's no temple mount where there's sacrifices. But Christianity and Jesus still stands today. Again, family, may we have a mindset that we're not looking to earthly things, but we're looking to things above. Will our lives embolden other believers? Or will our lives be the reason and the excuse why people don't see God with all their heart? Will we be the excuse or will we be the reason? So again, may we be praying for our brothers and sisters who suffer persecution every day. May we be laying up riches in heaven and not just on earth. May we be abiding in Christ daily that we won't be fearful and that we can be faithful until the end. And may we prepare ourselves for the coming martyrdom. Jeremiah 12 verse 5. 
The NASB reads, if you have run with the footmen and they've tired you out, then how can you compete with horses? And if you fall down in a land of peace, how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? Worship team can come up. Pastors, you can come up. And family, this has been one of the verses the Lord has really given me the past two years. I see all of this as just a test to show what are we made out of. And if in these last two years we are weary to the point of giving up or to stop attending church, stop being a part of the fellowship, be weary because how will we compete with the horses? How will we compete when there's a warning, hey, you may get sick at church? What will happen when it is known you will die and be put to death if you go to church this morning? So, hey, we're going to close in worship. If you need prayer, there's pastors up front. You guys may have been convicted now. I was convicted when I was studying, convicting at the 9, convicted now at the 11, right? That we'd come up front and pray, Lord, Lord, I'm holding on to sins, and yet there's brothers and sisters. There's children and toddlers who have willed and vowed to not bow the knee to any other God. And Lord, I'm still playing with sin. Lord, I'm still not willing to give you my Sundays. Lord, I'm still not willing to give up fishing or this or that or the third. And Lord, there's people willing to give up their own lives for you. Lord, strengthen me. Lord, convict me. Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit this morning.